cool. Give me a couple tests. Test, 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 test. test. All right, cool. We got both of you recording. We're in business. That one's, this one's me and yours is running on hold. Okay. Triple Sounds check. Good. And then quadruple check that. <coughs> Are we having fun yet? <laughs> All right, I should just open this up. Uh, welcome to the Kendall vs. Kendall podcast. We're taking a brief detour from our regular programming. Seth Kendall is not here at Sea Otter, so I'll be interviewing George Dubois and Greg Thrash of E13 Components. As you guys know, my name is Jeff Kendallweed. Normally, it's simply Seth Kendall and I discussing the world of bikes, and this podcast is sponsored by Jensen USA. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, George. No problem. Thanks, Jeff. So Thanks for having us. We'll keep this as quick as we can because we're at Sea Otter. There's people running around. Audio quality is probably a bit suspect compared to normal, but we'll do the best we can. Um, I've had lots of questions about E13 for years, but a lot of people probably don't know the beginnings of E13 on the East Coast with Dave Weagle and all that. Maybe you guys could take us through the beginnings of E13 and how it came to be your guys' company. Um, I think it started with Dave looking to outsource some plastic sourcing or outsource uh, plastic manufacturing. So we got in contact with our other partner, Joel Peters, who has a lot of contacts in Taiwan. He lives in Taiwan and uh, has set up supply chains for lots of different companies. And, uh, Greg, and Greg and Joel ran a consulting company before doing development uh, work for lots of other brands we're not allowed to talk about. Yeah, we basically did product development work for big companies that people would recognize in the United States. And... Uh, our hook was that I was in the United States and Joel was in Taiwan and we had a contract manufacturer in Taiwan that we did work for and essentially we were the go-between for brands here who had projects that they didn't have the resources to manage and they would ask us to take care of it and I would work on some of the design parts and Joel was in the factory in Taiwan taking care of the manufacturing and that was kind of our our deal so uh, I like George mentioned, uh, Weagle reached out out to us to look into having some of their parts made overseas because at the time okay. they were making all of their plastics and all of their 100% of their chain guides in uh, Massachusetts, I think, yeah. or various Lemonsta, Lemonsta, and various contract manufacturers in in the United States. And uh, when so we say plastic, that means like the Lexan that was in that original. Exactly, Bashgards. At the time, we were also, what, distributing for Formula? That's right. Yeah. So Joel and I started a company called Perigeum Development um, about 14 years ago and started out as what I just described, where I was in the U.S. doing engineering work and Joel was in Taiwan. And as we went along, we did a lot of contract engineering for a period of time and we were introduced to... Uh, the owners of Formula Disc Brakes, the Italian company, and uh, we discussed possibly becoming their distributor in North America. And at the time, there was only two of us, so we hired uh, Chris Costello to manage the sales and uh, representation of Formula. And we did that for quite a number of years, actually. Uh, I still remember at IBIS we were specking Formula Brakes and Chris was the contact. Yeah. So we've kind of bootstrapped ourselves to this position where we, we hired people that we needed for things that were not the Hive or E13 and uh, took those talents and used them uh, towards creating our own brand, which is the Hive and now E13. 
So we hired George. What year did we hire you, George? 2006. Okay. In 2006, and we actually developed a complete crank set. And uh, we had, at that time, we had a crank set that we were branding as 15G. Yeah. We had a disc or a road brake caliper that we had branded as Revel uh, because we had done a bunch of brake work for other companies. And we decided that we knew a lot about that and we should make our own. And so we decided we were going to... The Chub Hub, the Chub Hub, right? We had Chub Hubs. We licensed the Chub name from Joe Graney, who oh, uh, right. works at Santa Cruz. And uh, it was actually his senior thesis in college. The, he created the Chub Fixed Gear Hub. And so we had this collection of products under different names, and we decided that was going to be the hive. We're going to start the hive. And around that same time was when we made that connection with E13, and it turned out that uh, Dave Weagle was interested in selling the company. And uh, so we decided that that would be an easier haul in terms of a brand to have a well-known brand, E13, that was well-known for chain guides yeah. and would certainly lend itself to having a, a broader product line in terms of DH wheels and cranks and all the things that we were currently working on for other, for other things. So uh, we bought the brand from him, and that's how we came to have it. Yeah. I remember the transition from Hive to E13, and... I was a little like, I was like, wait, what's the hive? What's Perigeum? Like, I wasn't even sure on the kind of the dichotomy of the different brands. But. Right. And I think it was a real branding lesson for us trying to start out with, uh, you know, starting, starting at the top where you're like, yeah, we're going to have this family of, of brands and they're going to cover all these different disciplines. And, but nobody knows what any of them are yet. So you have to try and tell them what they are. That's tough. That's really tough. Yeah. And that was sort of a, a revelation to us being kind of naive about what what was possible and uh, you know on the engineering side we think all things are possible we don't that's never never crosses our mind that we're not going to be able to accomplish something technically but on the branding side it was kind of a, a whole new ball game and so buying the e13 brand that is represented has great products you know people people know them and love them and uh great products that were really well engineered especially with the weagle connection exactly yeah uh, a respected brand that makes products that people really use and, and yeah. yeah they're well designed and, and pretty forward thinking for the time for uh, chain retention so uh, I'd like to ask about George is coming into the company George you had a background working for another well-known bike company right uh, yeah I worked for Truvative and Tram for about five years before this okay and then I worked for Mountain Cycle for five years before that and all these brands are located in San Luis Obispo yep I don't think a lot of people know San Luis Obispo has such a bike industry side to it. My entire career, my commute has not been longer than two and a half miles. Wow. <laughs> so Within one bad. mile of Lemon Grove Trail on Mount Madonna. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of good riding, uh, real easy place to ride bikes and live. and yeah, it, It's real nice. Have you seen differing attitudes towards engineering between the various companies that you've worked at? Uh... Oh, that's a good question. I, I learned a lot of different things at different companies. Okay. Like at Mountain Cycle, I learned all about manufacturing, uh, CNC programming, manipulating metal, lots of different things like that. Uh, that was a great experience. It was a really hard job, but it was great. Tram, you know, working for Garrett, I really learned how to be an engineer. <laughs> like, brilliant mind. Uh, he was a really good guy to work for. And then working with Greg and Joel, like, 
completely different uh, spectrum of new knowledge <laughs> out okay. of nowhere. And you bring all that stuff you had with you beforehand and realize you don't really know anything. And you're doing it as a business now. So, uh, yeah, it's been really fun. It seems like from the outside, E13 has a lot of pretty wild ideas. And it seems like there's a bunch of engineers that work at the company. It almost seems like it's you guys look for challenges and really push the envelope quite a bit. So. I mean, the crank spindle, no one else is doing that slightly triangulated, uh, the Panzer tank gear yeah. connection. No one else is doing that, but E13 has been pushing that for 13, 14 years now. Yeah. So I guess one example, <laughs> I mean, how do you guys incorporate engineering and problem solving into the brand? Well, that's always been sort of our, I think if there's anything we tell ourselves about what we do, it's that we see problems that we have with cycling and we try to solve them, Yeah. typically using engineering principles. So that trilobe polygon that we use on the crank spindle was actually one of, that was sort of the basis of the first crank set that we designed was, hey, we think we could use this for a crank spindle and it seems like it would really lend itself to aluminum and we're not the first people that use that design on a, on a bicycle crank, but we were the first ones who used an aluminum tapered uh, interface um, to connect an aluminum arm to an aluminum spindle with a 30 millimeter diameter spindle. And it's, that design really lends itself to aluminum because of there's no sharp edges, so you don't have places for fatigue cracks to start in that assembly. And yeah, that's probably the longest running feature that, of anything that we've made. Is, is that design feature. And um, I think that's always our approach. We don't want to make products that don't, that don't improve whatever it is we're doing in some way. And it may not be, it may not be a revolutionary concept, but we don't want to just make something for the sake of making it to fill out our product line, yeah. which is why we've kind of limited ourselves to kind of a DH or high-end, um, you know, trail and enduro type product because that's what we know and that's what we ride. And so the, the issues that come up with products that are used on those kinds of bikes are the things that we want to deal with ourselves. Nice. So, so I, when it comes to um, testing out new products and such, I've got kind of two questions about this. One, how... <laughs> How does everybody in the office work as a tester? And then two, how hard is it to keep new ideas kind of under wraps and top secret? Uh, we all ride by ourselves pretty much. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> either together or separately alone. Um, so it, it helps with uh, keeping things secret. But, you know, like you said, San Luis has a lot of bike people there now. And <clears throat> there's a little bit of mutual respect there. I see some people from SRAM on the trails from time to time. and. We both kind of nod and go our opposite directions because, yeah. you know, maybe their bike doesn't have any cables on it that day for some reason. <laughs> um, yeah, and then, you know, Joel lives in Taiwan, and he's found a really nice trail network there that's fantastic for product testing. Cool. And we all try to prioritize riding a bit. Um, but we're also getting a little bit older, and <laughs> we've got people like Corey that, you know, goes out and races every weekend. And, and Corey sends it. Yeah. <laughs> So he's going to do stuff that, you know, we were never capable of doing. Sure. So we like to make sure that it's safe under us before we give it to our coworkers. <laughs> do you guys ever get to ride production uh, parts instead of prototype parts? And if you do, what's it like to transition from proto to production? I think we pretty much always do that. I mean, uh, certainly, so I'm the one who has been working on all of our cassette designs, and that product especially 
I'll start writing, you know, the first writable samples and working myself up through to a production cool. sample. And we've always written the production parts for some period of time before we actually release them to customers. That's kind of the protocol we follow with that. And I think that's probably true of most products. Um, yeah, there, there are some times where we find that we don't have enough people, you know, and so <clears throat> we'll pull in like close friends to start writing production stuff after we've cool. done a quick stint on it to make sure that, you know, everything is what it's supposed to be. And then those are the guys that report back, you know, three months later, four months later. I've done some testing for some other companies, and I'll ride prototype stuff, and I'll give them some feedback, and then I'll, I'll send it back, and I'll never see anything again. Then all of a sudden, a year or two later, I'll see a press release about it, and it's like, oh, wow, cool. <laughs> but it's interesting with the size of E13, which is you know smaller than Shimano or SRAM or whatnot, yeah. that you guys can actually keep the same people testing the same product all the way through. It's not just like mid-stage prototypes that actually get sent out to testers. It can be literally the whole process. I think that's neat. Yeah. I mean, it's always a challenge to find enough people, you know, and find that balance between like making sure that you've got enough hours on something, but not testing things that are basically done. Yeah. You know, at a certain point, you have to decide that the product is done. And um, for some of our products, you know, the bar that you set for performance has to be pretty high. Like cranks, the consequences are pretty dire if your cranks fail when you're riding. So you need to do a lot of testing to get that done whereas if there's uh, you know if you have a lot of testing on on a cassette you'll maybe find something that doesn't happen all the time and you can't quite pin it down and it's probably not really affecting somebody at the end of the day and maybe I can fix it in a month once I've isolated it so you get a little bit more um, more leeway on that front so it's definitely product by product I would say so you guys have some challenging products out there you got dropper seat posts I mean, cassettes that have to shift correctly, crank bearings, see so much load. I mean, that's some, you guys have not shied away from some of the harder products to develop. So what's been the hardest one? To, uh, or maybe the one that you're most proud of, if you can't think of one that was harder than the rest. I think technical challenges, we always seem to find our way through. It's uh, keeping things to a schedule and yeah. doing things in a timely fashion are without a doubt the hardest challenge that we have. Um, you know, yeah, it, I think also just being a small company, but taking on a lot of different kinds of projects um, certainly those the different projects are competing for for your effort yeah, yeah. at certain times and, and that can be extremely challenging um, yeah I feel like we we're pretty good at finding solutions to technical problems but it's trying to make sure that you're finding the right solution at the right yeah. time so that the project can go forward and, and you can launch it and start start selling it to the public and, and selling something that you're you're proud to proud to give to a consumer how nerve-wracking is it when a product actually is presented to consumers and the article goes live on pink bike what's that moment like after dedicating years into designing something uh i think we usually try to go for a ride that morning <laughs> come back to the office later and find out what everybody has to say <laughs> i i'm definitely not the person that reads those first <laughs> yeah yeah I mean, there's certainly a pattern to it. You go look and, um, I mean, if you spent all your time reading comment threads on websites, you would <laughs> probably just stop, stop doing your job. Uh, and but they have such a pattern to them. I mean, if yeah. you're paying attention to what everybody else is dealing with, you know, there's always a range of opinions. And um, I think 
for me personally, if I'm going in and reading a review of something, especially a cassette, because those are the ones that I've spent the most time working on, you know, I, I want to pick out the things that they had this experience and and it was frustrating to them because that's the kind of thing that I can address. Um, so the real comments, it's real feedback, not the ones that just like throw out a blind, it's too expensive, or why would I, yeah, like the vague comments don't. <laughs> well, too expensive, everything's too expensive. I know, that's been so, a common thread on that website for a long yeah, time. Yeah, and I, I don't blame people for that. Like, you know, the, the stuff uh, we always used to, I, we're well past the point where we discuss the fact that a lot of the, the products that we're selling and um, are going on bikes that are, it's a lot more expensive than what I would go out and choose to buy on, a, a, you know, with the, the income that I have now. But um, that's fine. You know, we make a range of products for for all kinds of people, and that's that's part of it. Effective stuff as well. Too. Yeah, I think we we have to do that, and we want to do that yeah. because certainly I didn't start out buying you know bikes with. I wouldn't buy an Eagle equipped bike when I was you know just getting into the sport. Yeah, like I wouldn't yeah. have been able to swing that. So I want to be able to. To, you know, offer something for everybody. There's an interesting dichotomy on a lot of websites online where the tech comments will be so oh, just very, very harsh immediately, and then just like the stuff that I do, the more like riding content stuff, it's like super positive, and I'm stoked for that ratio. But it's got to be you tough on your guys' side of the, <laughs> of the spectrum. You wonder if it's the same people. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> it is. Yeah. So. Well, uh, th this kind of event, like the Sea Otter, one of the best things about an event like this is you can stand out in front of the booth and talk to somebody. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we have a lot of people who just show up to tell us how much they like what we make and totally. how much they enjoy riding the products we make and how excited they are about it. And that's a wonderful thing, you know, when you spend all your time working on this stuff. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I think we take criticism of, of what we're doing very seriously. Like, we, we want everybody to be happy, but you realize, after, if you pay attention, you realize that there is a there is a group of people who just kind of want to tear everything apart, and you just kind of have to filter that out. But when you come here and you start meeting people who are just, you know, stoked on your brand, like, that's, that's pretty fantastic. It makes you feel good. So. One thing I've wanted to ask about, so e13 became the brand name and publicly facing like portion of the hive in 2007 i want to say 2008 uh 2011 i think yeah. 11 it was yeah. later than that yeah, yeah. i showed so much research i did before <laughs> so <laughs> this is a trick question e13s became that publicly facing name for the hive which was an amazingly good move but we've seen basically the same company continue from the 15G cranks in 06 or so, and here we are, 2019. That's pretty good staying power in an industry that's known for chewing up and spitting out a lot of companies that aren't huge. So what do you guys think it is that has contributed to the staying power of E13? We're stubborn. <laughs> uh, well, that's a good question. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a fun ride. It's cool to see our booth is always growing and there's always more parts in it people all over here yeah I mean I think we've been fairly selective about what we what we do um, you know we do choose to make products that are gonna go on the bikes that we enjoy riding that's number one and, and uh, we're not trying to make a product for every bike that everyone has and I, we couldn't yeah. so there's that but by focusing on a few things that we're really kind of connected to and that we go out and ride every day I think it kind of motivates you to make them really good and I think we've done a pretty good job of that 
One thing I've noticed is that over the last 10 years or so, one-byte drivetrains have become commonplace. Dropper seat posts have gotten to be very long drop. Rear hubs have gotten, you know, the spacing of Boost 148 has taken off fully strongly, very well accepted. People, a lot of this stuff really appeals to the higher level advanced riders that are, you know, really good riders. So back in the day, do you think the target demographic, like the actual average target demographics riding ability level, do you think there's been an increase in what the perceived consumer's riding capacity is? That's a really interesting question. I think our mountain bikers better now than they were 10 years ago. I'll say the bikes by far yeah. <laughs> are much better. And bike. the bike, bikes are better. I mean, trails are better. It's kind of hard to find dangerous trails. I mean, what? Well, not dangerous, but like dangerous because they're poorly built. <laughs> um, I think everything's just keeps evolving. Yeah. It's nice to be part of it. I think there's also uh, something where the the bikes are so much more capable than they used to be, but people have always sort of aspired to ride what, you know, pros are racing and riding, and what that used to mean was, you know, cross-country yeah. race bikes, which were kind of terrifying to ride on a lot of the things that we would ride today. So if you go out and tried to ride some of the trails that you're frequently riding on a, you know, a hardtail with two <laughs> inches of travel, like That's you might... That's not a fun time. No, it wouldn't be. In, at, but if you send out an average rider on that, they're going to have a miserable time. And whereas if you send them out on a bike that may have a lot more capability than they do they're going to be in control and they can go as slow as they want and you can enjoy those trails you know um, just because the bikes are so very capable we've yeah. always seen like that race machines are always way less comfortable than like regular everyday machines like any any kind of motorsport or any kind of other uh, a lot of other sports at least the stuff that they're using in competition is like so precise and so responsive it wouldn't be so conducive to regular fun so right. yeah but it seems like right now because uh, because enduro has become a th the thing, uh, that's not as true. Those bikes are, I mean, they're responsive and everything, but they're also they they can accommodate a lot of errors <laughs> in yeah. your choice of lines, and um, and so it's it's kind of safer by that. Although it's like not like driving a Formula One car. It's like driving I don't know what a Baja truck, you know? <laughs> I think like a lot of the race Enduro guys will have like for their race bike, they'll be running like Cushcore or something. They'll use the heaviest tires they can find, so right. super gnarly aluminum rims. And then their regular practice bike might actually have carbon rims and no tire inserts or whatnot. So like there's, I don't know, there's a few ways they might bulk that up. Sure. Um, last question here before we wrap this up. What do you guys want E13 to be known for in, say, 20 years? And folks look back at this 2010 to 2020 generation of bike parts. <laughs> George. <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming E13 will be even bigger in 20 years than it is now, but what do you guys want to be known for? What kind of a legacy does the brand want to have behind? I think for me, I'd like it to have the, you know, I would like people to have the kind of fond memories about the bikes they had with E13 parts on them that I have about you know, the first time I got a bike that had some cool cranks on it. Like I, I had a, I have had a number of ridiculous bikes over <laughs> my lifetime, but I had, you know, I had a, a tie bike with some synchros welded carbon cranks and I, or not carbon welded steel cranks. And 
I loved that thing, you know, and I have fond memories about that, and that that lingers with me. Those thoughts about Synchros, and it's certainly not the same company that it was in, the, in that day, but it, it was cool. I mean, George worked at Mountain Cycle, so I'm, every time I see a picture of a Mountain Cycle, I send it to him. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I don't know what he thinks about that, but but it's kind of like that, you know that that <clears throat> company had a time and a place where it was it was the the one to have, and it was yeah. cool, and I want people to. You know, hopefully they have that kind of memory of us. Like they think about that that bike they had that had a set of our wheels and cranks on it, and you know, the good times they had riding the thing. And I think that's that's probably the best thing you can do or can cool. aspire to. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the sure. Kendall versus Kendall without the other Kendall. Podcast. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Kendall versus yourself. <laughs> Once again, thanks for tuning in to the Kendall vs. Kendall podcast. Subscribe to us on the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for a few more Sea Otter episodes.